Hello everyone, this is China Paradigm, where we, Dashi Consulting, interview seasoned entrepreneurs in China. Hello everyone, um, I'm Matthew David, the founder of Dashi Consulting and its podcast, China Paradigm. I'm today with Tom Xiong. Uh, you are the founder of Wu Shanghai, uh, an app providing premium um, health and fitness membership. Uh, to enjoy experiences of fitness and uh, sport in more than 150 places, as far as I understood, uh, over Shanghai. I used your app today. Yeah. I went through, through the map. Indeed, I found like three or four places next to my office, which is something I was looking for for a long time. So <laughs> I may be using it after the talk. Uh, you're also the founder, co-founder, sorry, of a podcast called Digital China. I just learned before, right now, like three minutes ago. Uh, so I'm going to listen to it. Uh, it seems very, very active. I see like one or two episodes uh, uh, or one or two episodes per month or even more, two or two, three yeah. sometimes. So it looks like very, very active. Um, you have also an experience of uh, Chinese startup. You have been at Key One before, you have been different startup. So that's something I, I, I'd be interested to, to, to know um, how, how it worked out for you. And also you have been working in consulting, as I understand, uh, you advised some, some companies in the past. But first of all, I like to understand better what's Move Shanghai. And uh, I like to go in depth uh, in how you built it, how you manage it, and what you provide for your clients. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, nice, nice being here. So, so Move Shanghai, we're basically a digital platform that allows people to access thousands of different fitness activities around Shanghai. So it's a pretty simple marketplace play, such as Airbnb, Uber, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where you know uh, we instead of you as a consumer need to go to one gym and get one you know annual card or whatnot. You, know, you can access everything through us instead and just buy a membership through us instead or just pay per time. And we offer everything we, from, you know, five-star hotel swimming to NBA-style basketball classes to CrossFit and yoga, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and, and the purpose of this being actually that uh, we saw a huge part of the market of people that want to have fitness because it makes them more healthy but the main problem is that they are not super into fitness. So they kind of uh, stop using it very fast because they get bored by only going to one place. So we hope to be able to uh, allow more people to work out and you know, make the pie bigger, to say. Interesting. Before we go back at the, at the um, idea uh, of uh, the mission you have with Move Shanghai, could you mm -hmm. give us an idea of the size of your business currently? It could be number of clients, could be revenues, could be a number of places. I think I, I found this number, number of places you're offering. Um, could, could be the um, um, size of the team. To give an idea to the people who are listening to us, uh, where, at which stage of the development you are. Yeah, so we're still fairly early stage. Uh, it's taken a while to kind of find product market fits, but we're at the stage now where, where we're growing quite a lot. We have about 20,000 members in Shanghai, about 150 uh, different studios. We're adding about now at the rate of 20 to 50 studios a month. So it depends on when this is published. Uh, there might be way more than 150. And, and also uh, the team is uh, fairly small. We're about 
10 people in the team uh, in, here, here in Shanghai uh, that includes both uh, technology and customer service and marketing, etc. I see. About the business model, how do you work? I went to your website, so I understand that I can subscribe to your services and then I have a certain amount of classes every month, like 10, 15 classes. Um, and also I can pay uh, per session. So you have different, yeah. different ways, I feel, uh, to, to, to monetize. Could you give us a better understanding how you, what, what you sell and also the mm -hmm. business model behind? So the business model, the actual how it works is very close to how, for example, Spotify works. So I negotiate a fixed rate with all the venues that work with me. Uh, so let's say you're a gym, right? So every time someone from Move Shanghai goes to your place, I'm going to pay, pay you a fixed fee. And you as a gym, you don't need to do anything. You know, you don't need to do any marketing. You don't need to do any the sales. I'm just going to bring you a bunch of people for you to focus on the thing you love, which is, let's say, hold a yoga class. And what I do, on the other hand, to the users, to the B2C, is obviously that I charge them a fee that is higher than what I pay to the actual studio or at the actual gym um, in order to, in there, have a margin. And the, what you pay for as a user is that you get to buy, let's say, a, a pack of 10 classes, but they are valid anywhere. So for you as, you, as a user, you're paying for the flexibility. You're paying for being able to live free and you know, do whatever you want and at any time you want to do it. Uh, and, then, and then we obviously also have, we have something called Move Go, which is very much inspired by WeWork Go, <laughs> um, okay. which, is called, which is meant for you to just go to one or two classes without buying any type of membership anywhere. I see. I see. So I am on, on your pricing page and I see 1999 mm -hmm. GMB, uh, 1499 and 88 for move go so per session. Um, I yes. understand um, you are pricing a little bit higher to have access to more venues and more activities. Yes. You are not pricing higher for more bookings. So actually um, you you, you feel the value is the access of the number of places more than the number of sessions. Yeah, of, of course, of course it is. I mean, like there are two types of fitness consumers out there. There's one, one person that loves, you know, yoga and loves going to yoga at a certain place. Uh, we're not targeting that type of customer because they should go to an actual yoga studio and buy their annual mm -hmm. card, you know, whatever usually costs around 10,000 to 20,000 here in Shanghai they should go there and they can go there every week at any time they want only that place because they love that activity and they love that venue that represents about 15 to 20 percent of the paid fitness market in China the rest of the market are people that are either new to fitness or not super loyal to fitness due to uh, lack of interest I mean a lot of people were out despite being interested in it because it's good for your body right um, and those people, we have found that they, over time, very fast decline in their consumption. So they go down in their consumption because they get bored. And what we're fixing is exactly that problem. But obviously, you know, per time, you're going to pay slightly more 
if you want this very wide and broad access versus if you just go to one single place and commit to them for a year. I see, I see, um, I understand. The question of the business model behind it is uh, uh, a couple of questions in terms of how to operate. The first thing is that how can you harmonize and get 1990, let's say 1,000 MMB for 10 bookings and I believe mm -hmm. each of those studios have different pricing. That's the first thing. And yeah. secondly, I, I may have misunderstood, but I feel that you have some inventory and that you are paying first some studio, or is it a profit sharing model? Because when I looked at your business, I thought it was a profit sharing model. I used to manage a company in, in Beijing where we had, uh, we, were, it was, it was, we were selling gift boxes and inside you can go for a star and whatever, and it was profit sharing model. So I, 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 I thought I had an understanding of how you were operating, but now I'm a bit confused if you have an inventory and you pay first some studio and then uh, you have kind of deposit with them. How, how do you work? No, uh, we work on the afterpay model, which means that um, let's say uh, you're a MOVE member. So today on April 2nd, you go to a yoga class. By the end of this month, I, I'm going to calculate how many uh, visits in total they were to this yoga studio and then we pay the yoga studio for what we owe them uh, for the amount of I visits see. they, they receive. So it's an afterpay model. Uh, the reason actually we didn't go for, so, so there are two ways to do this business model. One way is that I talk to each individual 150 studios, right? And I say, hey, you know, uh, I want to pay you X or Y and then, and then we negotiate and then they give me a price of between X and Y, right? And that's, that's how we operate. Uh, and then there's another way to operate, which is telling the studio saying, um, the, the same way Didi or Uber does, saying, you know, we're gonna charge the end user. Don't, don't really know how much, but I'm gonna give you, let's say 70% of the, the revenue. I'm gonna keep 30 yeah, yeah. and I'm gonna yeah. distribute 70 to everyone working with me. Um, the reason why we did not chose the latter option is because the fitness market in China is very immature and you have um, very, how do you say, differentiated pricing, uh, sorry, very varied pricing between different studios, different locations of, of the city, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, in order to have a profit sharing model, you need to have a slightly more mature market where the pricing levels have matured, where people are, charging what after what the demand is and you have more clear layers of different qualities so in shanghai everything is a little bit more mixed together because it's such a new industry yeah and the and the prices vary quite a lot and when that happens it means that if you do a profit sharing model uh, you either create happy uh, very happy or very unhappy suppliers i.e the gyms because someone says, oh, you know, I usually charge 300 per class. And then this month in the profit sharing with Tom, I average only 30 RMB per class, you know? And some say, oh, I only charge 30. And I got 30. It's awesome. So, and, and because just the variations is so much in, in the price level. Well, for example, in some other markets, for example, in Stockholm, Sweden, there's a model like ours where they do only profit sharing, but that's because that industry is super mature. Everyone is charging exactly what they should charge. Sorry, sorry I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm a bit confused. You don't have yeah. a profit sharing model 
meaning that you don't yeah. charge the same thing to to the end consumer can you can you explain then how you work yourself because the pre model is pretty clear for me 30 percent 70 percent it's pretty standard actually to take 30 percent when when you're in profit sharing model yeah. i feel uh, the gift box business like smart box in france in europe um, and that's what i was doing in yeah. beijing it's for 30 percent but how do you work I, I i'm not very clear now so, so, so basically the way our model works is that we go to each individual studio and we say, okay, let's say you charge 300 RMB uh, for a class to, to the end user as a studio, okay? And then we say, we say, based on our data, based on the expertise of the market, we feel we should pay, let's say 50 RMB for a class here, okay? Because that is the actual true market value of this product. Because when we sell it, you know, in our packages, you know, I need to have a margin, but, but compared to all other inventory I have, you should be priced at 50. If you don't feel that is okay, you know, only give me the classes that you feel are valued at 50. And um, that enables a more long-term type of uh, cooperation with, let's say, the, with, with the studios, because then they can take the feedback and say, you know what, why don't I design a class or design an experience that is more mm. valued for this 50 RMB type of price point? Because we have so many new studios in Shanghai that haven't achieved product market fit. So that th number of 300 is not verified why they should charge 300. Yeah, because it's an immature I market. See. If I wouldn't do it like that, then it would mean I just say, you know what? I can't guarantee you how much money you're gonna make next month. Maybe 30 per class, maybe 50, maybe 300. Depends on how much I sell and depends on how much they use it. Make sense? Okay. And, okay. and then you have Makes a problem sense, yeah. because you can't, mm. you, know, uh, you can't get, because all every fitness studio in Shanghai are usually small businesses. So they need to have a very realistic view of how much money they are gonna be making this month mm. or next month. Because it's like you and I, we run small business, right? You know, I mean, we need to know how much money we're making. We can't take any risks. So me as a platform, I need to take the risk and I need to guarantee them actual money coming in in terms of at least unit price. So they understand that if I invest in, in another coach to run another class for me and I get 20 people, then at least I know I will make the money back to cover my costs. I see. Talking about... Uh, so, fully understand now the model. Uh, talking about the nine, 999 JMB for 10 bookings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, still, I have a question here. How can you harmonize the pricing for different experiences and different classes? So, th that's a risk we take, right? So, we have certain partners that are more expensive, and we have certain partners mm -hmm. that are less expensive for us. For the consumer, it is going to be the same. And that's the risk we as a marketplace take, where we guarantee you're going to pay 1,000 quai for 10 classes, period. And then if you only go to the classes that are maybe very expensive, then I have lower profitability. But that's the only way to make the consumer feel secure about something new. Because we're at a point in Shanghai and in China where the fitness consumption is very new and very immature. And if people don't trust the product, know what they're paying for, then no one will ever use it. I understand. When you, talk, when you say booking, uh, is it a, a class, a one-to-one -one class? Is it a group class? Is it just to enjoy a session like uh, going for one day? 
Um, so it's, we have mainly three types of things. So we have group classes, so which is, let's say, yoga class with 10 people or 20 people or a Zumba class. Um, we have gym access which is that you can go to a gym and, or a five-star hotel to swim uh, or gym and you can be there for as long as you want that day you can go there anytime and you can leave anytime within their opening hours of course and then the third thing is that we have sports so and that is also obviously um based on time let's say we have tennis so you need to actually reserve an actual time you know to play tennis and that's depending on venue that's uh, depending on sports and venue, that's everything from one hour to two hours in, in length. I see. I see. So not one-to-one, yeah. -one, group classes, access to facilities, um, which can be sport or hotel facilities. I understand. Between the, 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 the plan of basic pass and user pass, uh, my understanding is that you have uh, more venues uh, in the universal pass, and I f it's more expensive. Uh, I feel yeah. that actually you may provide venues which are actually maybe more expensive uh, and a way for you to, to offer uh, higher priced uh, venues uh, with, without bearing the risk of being unprofitable on those ones. Is my understanding correct? Yes, so there are two things in this. So we, we actually just started with this uh, pretty late last year, which means that we have two packages, the basic and universal pass. You have more access to venues in the universal pass than you have in the basic pass. And the reason why this happened is, like you say, it's a um, challenge with harmonization because uh, when we started expanding outside Shanghai, cover Hongqiao, cover outer areas of Pudong, et cetera, et cetera, usually the fitness venues out there tend to be much more cheaper to the consumer, which means that our price point our original price point of 1,500 was a little bit too high. If you, if you live out in Hongqiao, you only want to access Hongqiao places, right? Um, and that's yeah, why we started, kind of, um, so we started kind of a cheaper type of membership for you to access certain venues. And, uh, and, and obviously that is an issue that you know, overall is happening whenever uh, the market matures, where you're gonna have a few more fixed price points. So basically, the way we look at it is that there are two types of users. There are the users that are sub 100 RMB per class, and then there are users around 150 RMB per class. Uh, those are very different in their behavior and in what they need and want. I see. Okay. Then in terms of operation, I was uh, wondering, it's never easy to plug a solution which is driving clients to a place. Uh, for instance, mm -hmm. you drive you you. You invoice a client, so you, you get the money from the client, and you bring yeah. someone to a venue. But the person at the venue uh, who is at the reception may not know you offer. They may not know that the client has paid through you, uh, or there yeah. may be some turnover of people. How do you solve this issue? Because I had this specific issue when I was working in this gift box industry. Sometimes we had like restaurants, spa, and then people changed. Or even they, they closed, but not even talking about closing. They changed, the reception yeah. was different. They didn't know about the offer. How do you solve this, this, this issue? Uh, yeah, so, so I think that's one of the very important stuff like, like in an O2O business, right? Because you're, you're one of your O's, the offlines um, is always gonna have a huge reach and you're gonna have a huge diversity in terms of staff. 
uh, in terms of language skills, in terms of education level, and in terms of everything, right? Um, so, so, so we have big, huge internal processes to both, um, before we enroll any new gym or studio on our platform, we obviously, you know, do, do call, like a QA on their actual offline experience. How are they? you know, uh, are they premium or not, et cetera, et cetera. And then obviously, you know, we make sure to onboard the, the, uh, the um, reception staff, the people hosting the clients and, and taking them in. And then we have actually, uh, we have like uh, dashboards that they use in order to get the understanding of who's going to come. But also at the same time, we have integrations with their uh, booking systems and, and or um, reception software, depending on what they use. Uh, and then we have very active WeChat groups with every single gym that our operation staff here at our office uh, keep. So anytime there's an issue, we are always there. So if they get a user in, they say, hey, I can't find this person's booking, and we solve it. Uh, and then I see. Uh, for us, it's very important, obviously, you know, that the yeah. experience is yeah. good enough. So. Yeah, I remember when I was managing this business in Beijing, what we did is that people had to book through our outline. So we, they called us or sent us an email at that time, which I wasn't existing, and then we were booking for them. So we're making sure that uh, they, they got the right package. And so on. How does it work for you? you? You say that you integrate with each CRM. It looks like a, a, a mm -hmm. huge work because they have different CRM. We believe some of them may not be even, uh, the server may not be in China because we may have foreigners managing managing uh, yep. uh, managing some fitness centers uh, some of them may have a, uh, an Excel or whatever so because you that small studio as you said so how do you integrate that and you said that um, you you send them notification does it mean that there is an app for them as well there is a backend for them to see on your app uh, the, the number of people who book um, and then when, if I book from your app, then it's sending a noti uh, notification to the studio. How, how does it work? What's the flow? What's the process? Yeah, so, so from a user perspective, they use our mini program or our iPhone app to do a booking. And, for, and the user experience is, is usually pretty okay. So it means that they tap book and then it's booked. You know, they get a, they get a confirmation. Um, sometimes that confirmation is delayed because there are certain venues where we need to uh, wait for their uh, confirmation. And on, on, the, on the to be side, on the venue side, we basically have three types of uh, solutions. So one is that we have a direct API integration with a few of the more famous or large CRN systems that uh, larger studios usually use. And then we, have, we also have a second solution where we have our own backend and a, a dashboard for the staff. Let's say they, they you sometimes have small students they use paper and pen, yeah? And then it's easy mm -hmm. for them to get our dashboard up and, and they can see, oh yeah, I had Tom registered on this class. Uh, and the third solution is that we have our own developed kind of check-in system. So, so we have, um, we put on the Xiaomi pad, um, uh, and Android pad, um, on at the front desk and the only thing the user do is that they go to the front desk and they say i'm from move and then they get the pad and then they enter the code they got from move and either the pad turns green or and then the front uh, uh, like the front desk 
knows whether they should show the people in or not let them in. I see. So you even provide a POS, like a, uh, a device for some of them? Yes, yes, yes we do. Okay, that's a bit changing the economics because if you do that for 150 places, uh, you have to, to buy those products and to maintain them. Uh, that's a different, different model. Okay, interesting. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, like, we don't do it with many, so uh, we only do it with the very high traffic ones that don't have their own uh, integrated CRM. So, so it's very, very few, actually. I see, I see. Interesting that you can adapt uh, to different places uh, depending on the opportunity and the flow of, of, uh, of clients you send. Uh, you talked about iOS, you talked about the iPhone app, mm -hmm. and I noticed that you don't mention the Android app. I, I, I like to know uh, what was your strategic choice on, 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 on this. I interviewed um, a, a month, some months ago uh, Sebastian Godin from Kangu, and indeed he developed only iOS because he found out that his clients, actually his users, were mainly iPhone. Very few of them are using Android. So I'd like to have your view on this and also your view on mini program. So you have an iOS yeah. app, you have a WeChat mini program, uh, and you don't have an Android app. So what's your view on different formats? Yeah, it was based on the same thing. When we launched uh, about uh, two and a half years ago, uh, we, we made the conclusion that most people were using iPhone. So we wanted to focus uh, on iOS uh, due to lack of resources, right? And then at the same time, we built a mobile website, H5, that we integrated into WeChat. Um, and and we, we thought, okay, you know, if you have an Android, then that's how you access us. And then we were actually on our, we actually, um, then we actually finished the development of our Android app last summer. Uh, and we were going to launch it, but we actually put the brakes on it uh, and, and stopped maintaining and, and didn't launch it at all because we did not uh, want to uh, build up too much debt and build up too much with debt, I mean technical debt, <laughs> and, and had too I much see. stuff to maintain because we still have so much product development to do. And instead, we went over to actually WeChat mini program only. So we haven't done an iOS app update since um, I think August last year. Uh, and okay. we, are, we are moving everyone over to WeChat pro mini program. Number one, instead of being able to only do one release a month, uh, app release a month, because of all the time it takes to develop iOS, we're now doing multiple releases a week with wow. a smaller team. I see. I was, yeah, I downloaded your app, so I'm, I was surprised to be actually sent to Safari at some point. Uh, I don't know if it was uh, when I clicked on how it works or uh, uh, learned about the pricing, and then mm -hmm. I was sent out of the app. Uh, so now I understand that the app, the iOS app is not your focus anymore, that the mini program, which is your focus, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you, want, you want people to follow you on WeChat directly, which are creating a real ecosystem. And the, 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 the concept of technological depth is very interesting. It's, you, you mean by this, that by developing too much or too complex uh, infrastructure or technological solution, you have a liability, you have more uh, problems with code emerge, so depth. Is that the concept you were, you were talking about? 
Yes, exactly. So the more different code bases you use, the more bugs you need to fix, you know? And the more bugs you need to fix means the less time you have for actual uh, development. Yes, yes. What about mini program? Do you feel that uh, it is as powerful as an, a native app on iOS? Uh, do you feel that's some limitation? Or do you feel it's equivalent? Uh, I, uh, for our purposes, like, because we gotta remember what I, what we do, right? So we run uh, a very, I would say a simple recommendation platform. Uh, basically what we do is that we give users a bunch of different lists and then we have a pretty heavy backend behind it to give you the best possible list, you know, but considering we have thousands of things for you to choose from, our key thing is to give you the best possible list of things you can book. And then you tap, you book, you pay, you're done. Yeah. So uh, basically, so for our purposes, WeChat Mini program is like the best thing that ever happened to us. Uh, because uh, obviously, if I were to do mobile gaming, et cetera, et cetera, maybe iOS would be better and more powerful, but not for our purposes. And the, the, the only key thing I would say is that it's usually easier to do very, very beautiful experiences in iOS, where in WeChat Mini program, you need to do much more, how do you say, transactional experiences. So it depends a little bit on the purpose of what you do. For us, obviously, we want to do a beautiful, inspiring experience, but at the same time, it's really hard for us to do because we need to give you information about thousands of things. And yeah. we don't need to drive inspiration the same way that, for example, Airbnb needs to, because Airbnb is selling you that your vacation house, you know? Okay. Uh, I but see. I see. I'm just selling you one thing you do in your city on Thursday. I see. Yeah, I use both of your both of your platforms, and I don't know if it's because it's more updated or more uh, comprehensive. But I stick with the mini program much more, and uh, it was very convenient, so I could see what time, which day uh, the next uh, the next stations would be close to my office. So indeed, um, the experience was was, was uh, very intuitive and very easy. Um, talking about so you talked about technological debt. Uh, in some way, there is a bit of financial uh, term here. Uh, could you tell us more on how you financed your, the, the company? Did you raise money? Did you finance yourself? Did you program yourself at the beginning? How did you start? So um, when we started, um, I, we raised uh, angel funding of a few million RMB. And up to date, we've raised uh, only in the uh, single digits. Uh, of millions um, okay. and the still angel stage, uh, we turned cash flow positive um, after about two years of business. Um, okay. And we haven't raised any new funds since then, and we will probably not for a while. Um, okay. And the main reason is because we are a paid service. So we're not one of those classical, you know, free apps that's supposed to generate millions of users and always lose a bunch of money, you know, until you IPO or whatnot. Uh, so the product market fit in my, you know, in Move is about making money. If I can't turn cash flow positive, then I didn't prove shit, to be honest. 
Um, I see. I see. Uh, be, otherwise, my business model doesn't work, right? So, yeah. uh, so, so, so that's kind of that's uh, how how we're operating right now. We're kind of at the stage right now where we're growing organically quite fast um, with uh, because we have you know we put the technology in place we have put our processes in, in place so now it's only about you know running slightly faster but in a more in a more structured way and then at the same times you know we are growing in other ways because our the key thing for us to grow is not on the 2b side i it's not the amount of gyms and studios it is on the 2c side so the only question is, you know, how do we attract more people, get more people to try this out? Because everything, we know what to do with them the second they come in and we know how to monetize that. So the only question is, instead of getting, let's say tens of thousands in, how do we get millions of people in? And that you can fix with a lot of different ways. And me personally, uh, I am not the super big fan of raising too much VC money too early. Mm -hmm. We actually turned down a few very big VC deals uh, now almost a year and a half ago um, of that simple reason that I think, um, I think for this type of business, uh, you need to grow in a different way. I see. I see. So for you, it's more a sales question now. It's how to on how to scale the asset you have built, the number of of, of studios you have. Uh, what, what's your strategy in client acquisition so far? So obviously, you know, um, we have seen a lot. We've tried a lot, and what we mainly see is that it's really hard to sell fitness standalone. So 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 so, so imagine this. Imagine I come to you, right? And they say, hey man, um, you want to work out? And they're like, oh, sounds good. Everyone says that. I, sh I'm, I sure I want to be healthy. But then the length of conversion is very long. And then after yeah. a week, I come back. Hey man, like, aren't you going to work out? So it's exactly what you said in the beginning of, of uh, this recording, which is that I think I'm going to try it out. Everyone says that. No one does. <laughs> so... And because the topic of fitness itself is very uh, requiring quite a lot of commitment. So what we have found is that when we do co-marketing, co-sales, co-branding with other brands, mm -hmm. everything from F&B to yoga clothes, et cetera, et cetera, then we actually get people to engage and get started. So one example is that this month, we actually just launched that yesterday, um, I'm going to send you the QR code so, so you see it, is that we work with another very large clothing brand. And what they do is that if they will go to all of their, their entire CRM for Shanghai and tell them, you're buying our clothes workout. So here's an option for you. You can use Move, you can do whatever you want. And here's a small discount voucher for you to try it out and, and help out. And this is a beautiful way to work because it's not only good for me, it's good for the studios I work with because they get increased traffic that they wouldn't be able to do by themselves. If I didn't have 150 studios I work with, I wouldn't be able to negotiate with a very large clothing brand. I see. Um, so uh, what has been the major driver so far in terms of acquisition? The major drivers are, are, have mostly been, um, I would say, there, there are two things of it. Number one is creating an opportunity for people to learn about fitness. 
experiencing it without it being, um, you know, uh, without it being very hard, you know? So, 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 so for that, we do a lot of at work workouts. So for example, we work with WeWork. So we do everything, about 10 to 30 different classes uh, every week for WeWork. And this is an opportunity for people at their workplace to experience what this whole thing about fitness is. Uh, so it's more education, right? And then the second big driver in this is to um, make you feel you are not risking anything. You don't, you don't need to be afraid. You'll be able to get something perfect for you. Because the main reason why people do not want to do this is that every single person, before they go to that yoga class for the first time, they feel and are afraid that everyone there is more beautiful than me, better at yoga than me, and I'm going to be embarrassing myself. Yeah? I see. So it's about removing all of that so you as a consumer feel, you know what? This is a new experience. Let me just try it out and maybe it'll be fun. Maybe it's not fun and then I'll try something else out. Okay, okay. Uh, you talked about working with uh, WeWork and other, other companies. I, when, I, when I looked at your solution, I thought it would, it would be good fit for B2C. I mean, companies uh, who want to offer some membership or experiences to, to the team, to their team. Do you have such a, such a section? Um, we work with corporates. We have a very, very clear B2C strategy. So what that means is that we do not want a company as a client. We want your okay. employees as a client. And we are more than happy to work with you to engage your employees. But that, at the end of the day, your employees need to end come up, come and sign up for themselves. And the basic reason why this is, is because currently with our prices and the fitness venues we provide, we are not at the mainstream pricing point, which means that all employees, all the thousand employees at your company will not be able to afford this. And for the company, they need to have an average cost per, per employee, right? Which yeah. means that yeah. we usually, um, yeah, and so, so, so the numbers just doesn't make sense. But, but we do provide a lot of free and very discounted workouts for a lot of companies that we host at the company uh, where you know, the, 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 the upside for a company is that they get workouts. The upside for us is that we get brand awareness. I see, I see. Talking about your past experience, how did the past experience you had um, uh, in, in other firms, in other startups, in, uh, as, a, mm -hmm. as a consultant, uh, help you to build uh, your, your current business, Move Shanghai? Uh, uh, yeah, so the quick story is that I was born in China. I moved to Sweden when I was six years old. Uh, and then in Sweden at that uh, time when I was a teenager, internet was a really big thing. So I started coding, uh, sell, selling um, movies on CDs at my high school, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Um, so, uh, so, and then I founded a few internet companies. So, so I ran a total of about three internet companies in, in, in Sweden. Uh, and after I sold the last one, uh, I moved to New York for a while, um, to, to be a kind of an intrapreneur. So I, I started up a new business, but for another company, uh, based out of New York. And through that, I, I came to China and, and Shanghai and uh, decided I wanted, I've always wanted to do something here, but more or less decided on what I want to do, which is, which is move Shanghai. Uh, and throughout 
throughout this period and also uh, currently right now as well, I've also been working in, um, in different levels as uh, advisor to everything from P1 and Tantan in the beginning in China. But right now I'm mainly supporting very large global uh, publicly listed brands in their China strategy and only as advisor because um, I have a startup to run. I see. Interesting. Very interesting. How do you feel about um, um, the um, Chinese diaspora who, who, who left China uh, at, the age, at mm-hmm. any age as you did and we want, we want to come back to China? Uh, I feel China is attracting a lot of Chinese who have been over, who, have, who are living overseas, who have been raised overseas. China, they, they, most of them want to go back to China to do something because they see China growing so fast. But it seems not that easy to come back to China and to, to start a business, even with a very good background, academic and professional from overseas. What, what, what's, your, what's your opinion on that? We actually did a podcast episode about this uh, with the oh. title, Is China a Better Place for Talent Than Silicon Valley? Um, in tech, of course. And we interview some people. And, and I mean, like, my view overall, my overall view is, is that for the last few years, as, um, China, uh, for both China overseas, but a lot of Western talent, has been a place where you see huge growth. Uh, and you have a lot of career opportunities. You have a lot of, have a lot of business opportunities, especially in tech. And here, you know, with with the WeChats, with the TikToks, and the the DDs and the Alis and the etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, actually, more a lot of, especially within facial recognition and AI, a lot of more stuff is happening here than the rest of the world. Um, but what we found in the episode is sure everyone knows it, everyone wants to come back. But just the last year or so, uh, Chinese tech sector has gotten a little bit of a bad rep abroad mm. because of 996 mainly, mm. uh, where a lot of people yeah. think working back, uh, coming back. But you know they are seeing all these articles about people working nine to nine, six days a week, hearing about about people don't getting don't don't get bonuses and whatnot, um, and thinking you know my life is pretty cozy here in Palo Alto at San Francisco at Facebook or at Google. You know, should I move back, uh, or you know maybe I should just wait a little bit. So, uh, but overall, I would say I think there's a huge curiosity because right now in China there's not only money to be made but a lot of things to learn. And Mm. the thing that hits me very much with people coming here with either ABC type of profile or just foreigners coming here is that everyone is looking for that life experience of being part of something that grows very fast, grows very big, you know? And, And so everyone is here actually of, I would call it more, pure reasons than you see people move to, for example, New York, where they say, you know, I'm here because I want to make so much of money and then I'm going to get out of here, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I see there's more of experience and learning uh, people want from, from China than purely a financial uh, financial plan, um, I see. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, 
uh, oh, for our audience and listeners, we don't know 996. 996 means to work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. And I think that uh, Jack Ma who initiated this word 996, and then it was reused by many people. Uh, Jack Ma, by the way, is saying very, very contradictory things. Sometimes he's saying that uh, you should enjoy life and take uh, take time, and then saying that you have to work 996. I, I have a bit difficulties to follow him sometimes. Uh, how, how, what did you do in order to be up to date? Uh, in terms of technology, in terms of market, uh, in terms of information. Um, my, my fear as an entrepreneur sometimes is uh, to, 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 be, um, to be out of the technological race or to be out of what's happening. How do you keep up today and make sure that you are in the race? I think that's one of the main reasons I do uh, the podcast Digitally China. Uh, this is, this, I think seriously, that is the main reason I started doing it um, because it is a way for and Eva and our producer Jacob to keep up to date about things and, and keep learning about things and get an actual output uh, of these learnings instead of you know just reading stuff online and that's it. Uh, and through that, you get to talk to a lot of very, very interesting people with a lot of detailed knowledge. Uh, and, and, through, and that builds kind of a, you know, a platform that enables you to get actual information from the market and not just the stuff you read on Technode or mm. Tech in mm. Asia. Mm. Mm. And, and I think it's very if, important for personal growth. Okay. Yeah. Eva, is, is, Eva is working at... Uh, if I'm not mistaken, she's working with one of those group tech bloggers, right? Uh, Eva was uh, at tech, uh, tech in Asia before, and okay. right now she's a journalist at AFP, um, and and they are in based in Beijing. I see, I see, I see. Talking about your podcast, uh, personal interest, but that may interest as well uh, some listeners. How do you shoot your podcast? We are currently on Zoom.us. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty good so far. But what, what do you use as software and uh, tools? Uh, so uh, we use uh, we use a pretty like I, I use pretty um, low price and very good microphone uh, called Blue that I recommend to everyone. It's like okay. one thousand RMB, so it's not very expensive. And now what we technically do is that we do um, we do local recordings on every computer when we record because even is in Beijing, I'm here. Uh, so the production flow is, uh, is basically that one of us comes up with a concept. We usually interview people. So one of us interviews people, record the interviews. Uh, one of us, the person doing interview, cuts that interview into the pieces we're gonna use for the podcast that are interesting. Uh, and then we uh, record locally on each computer. We do a WeChat call, actually, uh, but we record the actual voice on our local computers. And then we talk through our kind of the entire structure of the podcast. We usually record a total of about one hour for a 30-minute podcast. Uh, and then we send all of that to um, our producer, Jacob, uh, that edits it and puts all the... Um, uh, the entire sound effects and everything on it. So, so it's kind of a little bit more complicated process than, than normal, but uh, to tell the background, uh, everything started with me and Jacob doing a Swedish podcast called uh, mm. The Digital Dragon. Uh, 
English. And, and that is a very, very uh, highly produced one hour format, storytelling format. So we really, like our, the main podcast we were looking at was This American Life. But we want to do that about technology in China. So we actually did one full hour production about Jack Ma, only Jack Ma, and his life story. And, and, but every episode in that, for that podcast takes about 80 hours in total to, wow. to produce. Yeah. Wow. Such commitment and investment. I talked to uh, the producers and um, actually uh, makers of the podcast of uh, Tech, Tech Node, and uh, they told mm -hmm. me that we, should, that we are recording actually through, no, they were not recording through WeChat. They were using WeChat to talk to each other, but they were recording on their phone on each side or on from the computer directly and they're using WeChat on the computer because you cannot use WeChat and record from the phone uh, the video and neither the voice. I, I don't know if there is security from WeChat to avoid people to recall each other um, and to spy on each other but it's technically not possible uh, to run a podcast or a vlog through WeChat directly and record your phone. Are you, have you had the same yeah. experience? Yeah. Well, actually, no. Yeah, well, we, we don't have issues like that because we do local recordings because yeah. we, we are very, very uh, aware of our audio quality. So, so we yeah. use real microphones. We, we use uh, isolated sound booths. Uh, most of our podcasts we do in studio, actually. Um, wow. And, uh, and all, uh, all local recordings, yeah. It's only when we interview someone we do um, over phone recordings, but then we never... We, we don't do interview episodes, so we only use of every one hour interview, we, we use maybe five to ten minutes of audio okay, clips from it. If you're in studio with Eva and yourself, you are both in, so in different cities, Beijing and Shanghai, so you, you, you're not talking at the same time. I mean, it's not a discussion, it's step by step. I really need to listen to your podcast. I don't know you have an English one. Sorry for that, but I will. Just that. Uh, no um, and uh, so is it, is it um, uh, a discussion or is it uh, one by one? Yeah, so, so it's a discussion. So we usually together go through uh, topics. Uh, so for example, our first episode was about lacking coffee, where we want, uh, this was a while ago, you know, but where we want to understand what lacking coffee is. Uh, is. Um, we, did a, we did an episode about comparing Spotify to TME because TME had listed. Uh, we've, we've made one episode about Dragon, Project Dragonfly entirely, about uh, Google's to be or not to be, you know, in China and, and the leaked documents saying that they were working coming back to China. Uh, so uh, we usually have a topic and then, uh, and then the usual flow is that we're trying to understand what's actually going on through interviews with experts and whatnot. And then we discuss that and we usually conclude. Uh, on, on, on something and all that in about 30, 20 to 30 minutes um, and, and the key thing for us is that um, we are trying to through the audio format through music and clips and news clips and other types of audio to kind of build a good experience for the listeners so even though you're not super into tech you feel you're learning something from it and understanding what the actual implications are on a broader basis than just you know for google or something okay i see my last question is how often do you exercise then 
<laughs> well, I, I actually, like it goes, it varies obviously. Uh, I found that um, I, I vary very much. Sometimes I exercise in the evenings, sometimes I exercise in the mornings. It very much depends. It, it, you know, it's based on mood. And that's the beautiful thing I think about it because sometimes I, I just feel like, damn, today's Saturday, I'm gonna eat brunch with a few 1 p.m. This is awesome. I don't have a lot of work today, Saturday. So, you know, I'll just go somewhere, just experience it, have a nice time, you know? And sometimes I'm super stressed out and I only want exercise because it's uh, increased my performance because I don't need to sleep that much. So then, you know, I do some stuff at home uh, instead. So, and I think that's the, that's the key of it because for me, the reason why I started Move to begin with is that I really hated going to the gym. And then I got really frustrated because whenever I went to the gym, someone was telling me how bad a person I am and how unfocused I am and how, you know, how, you know, I just need to shape up my life. And, and I was there, I was like, you know, I've run, I've run four startups. I think I can be a pretty focused guy at certain points. So why are you giving me all this shit? And then I realized it's only because your product sucks and your way to sell your product sucks. It's mm. not me, which other consumer product tells their clients they are shit. Seriously, right? Mm -hmm. and, and through that, that's why you know, we started to work with Move because we really wanted to fix the issue among consumers like me. I mean, I, I have no problem to pay for fitness. I need that because I'm gonna sleep better, I'm gonna work better, or my friends, they, they're gonna have more time with their kids. But that's why we need fitness. Not because we're in love with yoga or CrossFit, you know? And that is actually a much more, a much larger addressable market. At the same time, actually their pain willingness is higher because you're asking someone, how much are you willing to pay to get that two focused hours where you're not tired with your son or your daughter. When you ask mm -hmm. a consumer that question, they can pay anything. Interesting. Um, congrats for all you did. Uh, I really, I'm really going to hear that. Believe me, you're going to see me in your, in your subscribed list soon. And thank, <laughs> thank you, you very thank much you. for your time. Um, it was very, very interesting talk. Uh, we will be we'll be online, I guess, in, in two weeks. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and talk soon. Thank you. Bye bye.